0: Oh, would you have freedom from wage slavery and come join the grand industrial band? Oh, would you from misery and hunger be free? Come on, do your share land and? Oh, there is power, there is power.
1: Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I read through 100 pages of an American writer, giving my thoughts, comments, and historical context. In this episode, I will be looking at the first part, the first half or so of Indubious Battle by John Steinbeck. Indubious Battle was published in 1936. Um, he had written it. Started writing it a couple of years ago, based largely on on interviews he gave with with labor organizers, communist party labor organizers, who were actually trying to mobilize workers in the San Joaquin Valley. He actually talked to two in particular, Cecil McKitty and Carl Williams. And uh, there was a strike in 1933 among the cotton workers in the San Joaquin, organized by the Canarian Agricultural Workers Industrial Union which was actually a communist uh, left-wing union. So, although it's never mentioned in In Dubious Battle that the people we're talking to are communists, there obviously are, and, and it's very much modeled off of this. Of course, Steinbeck himself worked with migrant workers, so he knew uh, a lot about their lives, but much of the material for this book is based on, is based on his interviews he gave with, with these people. Now, around the time Steinbeck wrote in Dubious Battle, he published an essay, or he he wrote an essay that was never published, called Argument of Phalanx. Now, Phalanx, if you don't know, is kind of the Greek military strategy in which you had a a lot of infantry lined up with spears and shields. They couldn't really be attacked, but they could advance aggressively against um, their enemy. Um, You've probably seen depictions in film of the Phalanx in action. He wrote in this essay, quote, Man are not final individuals, but units in the greater beast, the phalanx. The nature of the phalanx is not the sum of the natures of unit men, but a new individual having emotions and ends of his own. And these are foreign and incomprehensible to unit men, end quote. So Steinbeck, when he was writing this, is interested in this idea of this collective experience. He played with this quite a lot in Tortilla Flat, as he looks at this community of paisanos, how they go from being individuals to... Kind of a group uh, with a purpose and an identity, something that transcends the individual purposes. We see how individuals' character and ambitions and private goals fade into the needs of the collective uh, throughout that novel. We see it certainly in *Grapes of Wrath* as well, but I think *Indubious Battle* is perhaps Steinbeck's most clear expression of this idea and we see it mostly through the character of the doctor who kind of parrots what Steinbeck is thinking Um, so this in dubious battle that the title comes from a quote that he he actually cites it at the beginning of the novel as an epigraph but it comes from paradise lost and I'll I'll just read it for you if you're interested innumerable force of spirit armed that durst dislike his reign in me preferring his utmost power with adverse power opposed in dubious battle on the plains of heaven and shook his throne what thought the field what what though the field be lost all is not lost the unconquerable inconquer- will a study of revenge immortal hate and courage never to submit or yield and what is else not to be overcome now i'd have to look it up and in fact let me do it right now Okay yeah I just looked it up it seems to be book one so this is as I suspected this is the point of view of Lucifer And of course in the dubious battle uh, is Lucifer against God right so God is impotent omnipotent so he's undefeatable he's unconquerable right So that is the metaphor for the workers struggle against the landowners here it's a futile gesture right now, despite defeat as we see in this quote from paradise lost we something survive right all is not lost you have inconquerable will revenge hate the courage never to submit or yield right and if you read paradise lost you know it's it's after being defeated by god that lucifer decides he'd rather rule in hell than than serve in, in in heaven so there's in this sense the workers are on the side of, of lucifer and uh, it'd probably be a good time to maybe think about William Blake's interpretation of Paradise Lost and the role of Lucifer and the, the various interpretations that get thrown out from time to time that suggest that Lucifer is really the anti-hero of, of the story. Um, and a, kind of a metaphor for this class violence. Uh, E.P. Thompson talked a little bit about this. You get a bit of this in Peter Linebaugh and Marcus Rediker's book, Many Headed Hydra. Um, and as I under, understand, Blake kind of had this inter- interpretation of, of the character of Lucifer And Steinbeck seems to be developing it a little bit So in this novel, we have It's really about two main characters uh, a Jim Nolan, who's a young party member I'll just probably just say communist But they're never really referenced as communists directly as, as the Communist Party Uh, of course in the 1930s when this novel was set the communist party was having a resurgence in the united states in the context of the great depression uh and you had a lot of communist influenced and left-wing unions that were very influential in the rise of the cio right and in some cases like in the national maritime union you actually had the overthrowing of afl more conservative craft unions by these industrial unions Um, We see, of course, the rise of the United Auto Workers, perhaps the most important of these um, engaging strategies like wildcat strikes, unannounced strikes, sit down strikes and all these kinds of things, which gave these striking workers a lot of power uh, to confront the bosses and led to millions of Americans taking part in strike activities over the course of the Great Depression. So even at the time of the greatest economic crisis in American history, unions made some of their biggest gains at any point in American history. Uh, they peaked, of course, in the 19, early 1950s or so. Uh, so Jim Nolan is one character uh, that we meet who's this young communist. He's kind of driftless, aimless. He's the individual, if you take that phalanx theory. He's the atomized unit man at the beginning of the story who is attracted to communism because it provides a greater, broader identity for him. The other main character we get is Mac. Mac is the old, experienced organizer of the party. He's a little bit more cynical. Uh, he's certainly a devoted communist, and he believes in the cause. But sometimes it's hard to see in this character, you know, maybe tactics and goals being often a bit confused. Right? He's a, he's he's willing to u- misuse people or use people to to make the gains. I don't think this is necessarily a critique. ...of the Communist Party on behalf of Steinbeck... ...because he seems to be sympathetic with its goals... ...but he is, uh, you know, smart enough... ...to question some of the tactics and and Mac's motives from time to time. You know, do the means uh, justify the... ...do the ends justify the means? Okay, so those are our two characters... ...Jim Nolan and Mac. Uh, so that the young, naive one and the, the older... Experience organizer, and there's a lot of tension between these two two characters over roles. Especially Matt, or certainly Jim, wants to play a more active role in the strike over time. So I'm just going to kind of jump into it and see how far I get into the novel. I'm um, talking about it um, in the opening chapter. Jim Nolan basically walks into the party office and meets with a man named Harry Nielsen. It's basically an interview where he's trying to join the party we find out that Jim's father although not a party member was perhaps sympathetic with with socialism or labor activism but he's defined as someone who fought alone his name was Roy Nolan even Harry Nielsen knows him and heard of him and it's kind of like wow your father's that guy but he was known as a brawler someone who got in fights with cops that you know was antagonistic on the picket line but not someone who was able to incorporate himself into the party itself Jim is influenced by his father uh, and the memory of his father to join the party. He's re- influenced by the books that his father kept around and the reading he did and how he kept up on, on kind of philosophy and politics. And he was also influenced by his time in jail. He spent some time in jail as a vagabond. And I talked about this before in this podcast. Um, vagabond laws were pretty common in the turn of the century um, and well into the 20th century. You could still get arrested as a vagabond if you weren't careful. Vagabond laws were basically laws against being unemployed and being out and about, right? Um, it was a way to to suppress labor activism, certainly, because a lot of labor leaders would come into town and they wouldn't have a job right away or they'd be outsiders. Uh, it was often used to particularly oppress black people who maybe weren't working and could be thrown in jail, and there was a whole criminal labor basically a form of slavery and you know in in prison labor and many black people were put into that system so but vagabond laws could affect all people who uh were seen as idle um and just kind of hanging out it was, it was a way kind of to clean up the streets it's almost the equivalent of these kind of uh community policing kind of situations in which the goal is to clean up the neighborhood you know fix broken windows, make the neighborhood clean, and therefore hope to eliminate crime that way. Um, But they were quite common, and it was one of the more oppressive aspects of the American justice system throughout much of the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, But he spent time in jail, and here's what he said about the people he met there. In jail, there were some party men. They talked to me. Everything's been a mess all my life. Their lives weren't messes. They were working towards something, and I want to work towards something. I feel dead. I thought I might get alive again. And then later on he talks He has, talks about his education and he says, well, he wasn't really formally educated, but he learned a lot from the books his father had. I read a lot. My old man didn't want me to read. He said I desert my own people, but I read it anyways. One day I met an old man in Park. He made a list of things for me to read. Oh, I read a hell of a lot. He made lists like Plato's Republic and Utopia and Bellamy and like Herodotus and Gibbon and Macaulay and Carlyle and Prescott and like Spinoza and Hegel and Kant and Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, he made me read *Das Kapital*. He was a crank. He said he didn't want. He said he did, he wanted to know things without believing them. He liked group books that all aimed in the same direction. So here, yeah, it's not his father. It was this man he met? But um, you know, books here take the same role as as kind of the individuals in the phalanx, right? That it's, as individuals, these books are just, just exist with their ideas, but they kind of collectively point in a direction, right? I've been recently refining a lecture on Marxism for my 20th century history class. And I was going back um, reading Kolowski, And he goes a lot into the kind of the deep prehistory of Marxism. Uh, The book's called The Main Currents of Marxism. You should read it if you want a good introduction to Marxist thought. But you find how even like the Neoplatonists and the Christian Platonists and Augustine and medieval uh, Irish philosophers and things, they point in the direction of Marx and Hegel. They get to the dialectic, uh, maybe not in a way that we'd recognize, but if you trace back the genealogy, you see they all kind of point in the same direction. And and that's kind of what Nolan's talking about here with this this man. And I I just love the idea of kind of the, the homeless philosopher. Right? The guy just sitting on the park bench who knows more than any college professor who's read more, more informed, but of course he doesn't have a job and it's not published and all that stuff. Um, basically, we learn that Jim feels he has nothing to lose by joining the party and he wants to have this new identity. He wants to be part of, of something. Um, and in fact, the very first thing we see Jim do in this chapter before he goes to the party meeting is to walk out on his rental lease and kind of break the last connection he has with square life chapter two in chapter two we learn a lot more about jim's background we learn that he lost his sister and it's not really talked about again in the novel so i i don't know steinbeck's point in putting this in maybe it's simply to present another example of how you know he lost a a connection to the world and was really atomized he became one of these unit men Um, but he lost his sister his sister basically just disappeared one day and his parents never found out what happened like she didn't come home from playing with her friends and she just disappeared um later on then jim meets some of the other party members after he gets sort of gets accepted into the party he meets mac um of course and i'll say a lot more about mac as we go on but he also meets joe joy joy is the strict doctrinal communist um and there's a there's a passage where he basically lectures jim about the basics that anyone knows about communism it's it's basically first-grade stuff, but he kind of lectures him on it. He says, Joy eased himself off the couch and walked over. Who produces the good? Joy demanded. Why the workers, said Jim. A foxy look came on Joy's face, a very wise and secret look. And who takes the profits? The people with invested capital, Joy shouted. But they don't produce nothing. What right do they have to the profits? End quote. Um, another thing we learn about Joy, though, is that he's he's clearly mentally ill. Uh, Mac says to him, "Pretty nuts, all right." You see, the last thing that happened to him was the worst. Joy was speaking at a barber shop. The barber put a call, on the cops raided the meeting. Well, Joy's a pretty tough fighter. They had to break his jaw with a nightstick to stop him. Then they threw him in the can. Well, I don't know how Joy did so much talking with the busted jaw, but he must have worked on the doctor in the jail some, because the doctor said he wouldn't treat a goddamn red. And Joy lay there three days with a broken jaw. He'd been screwy ever since. So uh, Joy is, does have some kind of mental disability here. Maybe not mental illness, but some kind of disability inflicted by getting by beat on the head um, by the cops. And ever since then, he's, he's kind of parroted catchphrases of, of communism. And that's, that's going to be a bit of his undoing in the end. He's a very militant guy, but we'd really never meet him as he was before this, this injury. Jim talks a little bit more about his time in jail. um, And he says, talks about diversity in his time in jail. He says, when I got to jail, there were five other men in the same cell, picked at the same time, a Mexican and a Negro and a Jew and a couple of plain mongrel Americans like me. Of course, they talked to me, but that wasn't that. I'd read more than they knew. Look, all the time at my home, we were fighting, fighting something, hunger mostly. My old man was fighting the bosses. I was fighting the school, but we always lost. And after a long time, I guess, it became part of our mind stuff that we'd always lose. My old man was fighting just like a cat in a corner with a pack of dogs around. Sooner or later, our dog was sure to kill him, but he fought anyways. Can you see the hopelessness in that? I grew up in that hopelessness. Um, and so we get, so again, jail becomes this moment for Jim where he realizes that there's a broader solidarity he can establish with the people around him. And anyway, so Jim's basically worked into the apparatus of this party office. He's taught that they really don't have any money, that they send people out on these kind of recruitment or or mobilizing organizing campaigns. But there's really not money to pay them. They're kind of on their own. They have to basically work at the jobs and make their money that way. And we learned that Mac likes to send out letters to sympathizers to raise money, to raise funds, to get support. Jim t- starts to take a job typing letters to build up support for the party at the local level. And the sympathizers are going to play a major role in this novel. And Mac certainly sees him as an important mobilizing force. Uh, but Mac doesn't just use mobilize, oh, sympathizers. He's going to use people who might support the party for purely cynical reasons. All right, we're going to meet a character later on. Boy's um, uh, a landowner, right? And he allows the party to the strikers to stay on his land because they promised to pick his apples for free, which would allow him to clear out his mortgage. So he's a very cynical person. We have uh the doctor who joins the party largely out of curiosity with what it means to be part of a an organized or an organism, right? Not being a single cell but being an organism. He's not really a communist though. So Max willing to use whatever tools are available to him. So he's a very flexible kind of figure. And we meet um that's chapter 2. So in chapter 3 we're still in this office of the party probably uh, the Communist Party and they hear that Joy has been arrested for attacking a police officer that day and we learn more about his injury and his mental disability. It seems he just got beaten up really bad by the police at an earlier time and you know, and he hasn't quite been all right since then. But he has kind of become more radical and much more vocal and much more belligerent. This will be an important point later in the novel. Um, and we hear, see here, how the party functions in a sense to try to bail out Joy and to try to work him out. Mac, you know, needs to cl- you know talks about collecting donations from the sympathizers to bail him out. They have a lawyer who can maybe make you know just say that he was drunk or something so he wouldn't get charged with being a radical or some way or maybe, or maybe just get a vagabond charge so try to they, they they have these mechanisms to deal with these arrests so there's a bit of institutional support and there's a bit of community support we learn um, and that's going to be a big theme throughout this whole novel i don't know how much has been thoroughly analyzed but um it seems that this strike does is is successful as it is even even though it's, a, it's mostly a failure even it's successful as it is because of the large amount of support they get from people they they're and we'll see many examples of that throughout this novel um so it's about this time that mac tells jim about his plans for the torgus valley and that's going to lead us into the main plot of the novel the situation in the torgus valley is there's apple orchards which uh, harvest you know at this time at one time of the year and then a little bit later the cotton harvest matures and is is harvested so the growers associations in the Torgus Valley have lowered the wages significantly for the apple pickers and the plan here is to basically mobilize and organize the apple pickers because usually those same workers who pick the apples then move on afterwards to pick the cotton so the plan is to mobilize and the the apple pickers or mobilize workers when they're apple pickers, get them to demand higher higher wages, which will mean they'll either be mobilized for the stage of cotton picking, or the growers won't, you know, accept. Won't will, will back down on the wage decrease. On the other hand, if the apple pickers accept the lower price for their labor in the apple picking phase, they're going. To, then the growers are going to think they can pull this off for the cotton. Here's how he describes his plan. There's the bulk of power in the hands of a few men. That always makes them cocky. Now we start our strike, and Torgus Valley gets itself an ordinance that makes the congregation unlawful. Now what happens? We congregate the men. A bunch of sheriffsmen try to push them around, and that starts a fight. There's nothing like a fight to cement the men together. Well, then the owner started vigilance vigilantes committee. A bunch of fools, shoe, shoe clerks, or my friends in the American Legion boys, trying to pretend they aren't middle aged, clinging to their belt to hide their pot bellies. There I go. Well, the vigilantes starts shooting, and if they knock over some of the tramps, we'll have a public funeral, and after that, we'll get some real action. Maybe we'll have to call it the troops. Jesus, man, the troops win all right, but every time the guardsman nabs a fruit trap with a bayonet, a thousand men over the country come to our side. Christ almighty, if we can only get the troops called out. Oh, I'm looking ahead too much. Our job just to push along a little baby strike if we can. But goddammit, Jim, if we could get the National Guard here, now with the cop's coming out, we'll have the whole district organized by spring. So we learn here a little bit about Max, perhaps cynicism, his attitude towards violence. And again, this is going to be a really important theme in the rest of the novel because this the strike that we're going to witness is, is a very violent one. And Mac keeps coming back to this idea that if someone dies or if there's a, you know, if there's fighting, that's going to galvanize the men into, into real action. So, then chapter four. Chapter four is mostly about them arriving in the Torgas Valley. And, and by the way, Mac brings Jim along as kind of an understudy. Um, And another thing that's going to come up a lot in this novel is, is Jim's resentment over not being given, like, important jobs. Mac doesn't... There's not really a clear reason how Mac uses Jim, except to maybe introduce him to a strike for maybe a future action. Jim's here much more as an observer than he is as a... A protagonist. And I'd say Max, the real protagonist of the novel, in the sense that he drives the plot along. Um, Jim is more of our our narrator, if anything. Be, even though we have a third person narrator, but it's it's he's the one. He's the eyes we use to kind of follow the the story. And the story ends with with Jim's uh, departure, so to speak. So as chapter four begins, they're they're catching a the train to the Torgus Valley. They don't have enough money to like drive there or pay for a fare so they just jump on trains and there's a really interesting scene here where mac just shows his his shows how he doesn't want to be bullied around they're they're sitting on like newspaper and some other hobos or migrant workers come onto the train and basically mac offers them some paper and they and then one the guy says okay I'll take it but he takes like all the paper and then mac you know basically threatens him punks him, says, well, you have ever heard of me? I'm a prize fighter or something. And then the guy gets afraid and, and lets it go. And Mac explains that most people just act tough, and most people aren't really tough when they get go. So you can kind of punk people. And that's, that's kind of a metaphor for Mac's strategy here because he knows it's a dubious battle. He knows he's Lucifer against God. He knows he's not going to be able to win this strike. But the goal is to maybe... Punk him essentially. Um, there's a little bit here about the relationship between girls and pride, and I've been trying to get at Steinbeck's attitudes towards women. Um, and let me let me find the section. Well, Jim's a young guy, right? So he's he's obviously interested in girls. And here he says. Um, Mac asks, well you're not a Chrysler either. Don't you even go out with girls? And Jim says, used to be when I got riled up I'd go to a cat house. You wouldn't believe it, Mac, but ever since I started to grow up I've been scared of girls. I guess I was scared to get caught. Too attractive, huh, Mac? That's Mac. And then Jim says, no, you see all the guys I used to run around with went through the mills. They used to try to make girls behind billboards or down in the lumberyards. Well, sooner or later... Some girls would get knocked higher than a kite. And then, well, hell, Mac, I was scared to get caught like my mother in an old man. 2 room flat and a wood stove. Christ knows I don't want luxury, but I don't want to be batted around the way the kids I knew got it. Lunch pill in the morning and a piece of soggy pie and a thermos bottle of stale coffee. Now, I can't help read this and think about Of Mice and Men and the deep loneliness of the characters in that novel, Right? And we see characters, you know, in, in, in Tortilla Flat, the characters didn't want to marry. They're really trying to avoid marriage pretty um, aggressively. In fact, the friends get together to try to prevent people from getting too close to a girl. Um, so there's potential to marriage. Here we have Jim trying to avoid marriage, too. But when we look at all these early Steinbeck novels and we see this restlessness and this rootlessness and the, the wandering about, and then how kind of vapid some of their lives get after a while and when we compare this to east of eden where we really have adam trask like setting up a homestead a family like a, a you know a castle we saw that dream in pastures of heaven of really sitting in one place and being stable um, we certainly have that in mice and men that's running throughout the whole thing is this dream of stability this dream of having someone throughout your life that You can call a friend or a wife. And here Jim is actively avoiding it. So, you know, I I think Steinbeck also values that. I mean, there's enough in the other novel, especially in Mice and Men, to show that he really values the end of the migrant life. But here we have Jim, maybe not mature enough, maybe not seen enough of the world to he's still trying to avoid marriage. And that's why he stays away from from girls. Well, when they get to the Torgus Valley, they they're in the town and they they run into well, Max got this book of this rolodex of sympathizers and he finds some Al. Al runs like a working cl- working class lunch counter where you can get like lunch or a dinner for twenty five cents with us some meat and a vegetable and some beer or something. So it's it's a really cheap meal for the people for the pickers, right? So he's also sympathetic to communism. So he's kind of a petite bourgeoisie his father actually owns land and is a grower although a small-time five-acre grower Um, but he's a sympathizer for whatever reason Um, and they meet with him they and they just chit-chat and we see Mac in action of really trying to hint his way to who he really is later on they have an encounter with the police and we see the strength of the surveillance state in the Torgas Valley and how on edge the police are for anyone who might risk you know turning up the cart and we see that they're threatened with vagabond laws very early on here. Uh, next, they go to the camp. They meet London. Now, London is an important character. He's not going to be the first people person the strikers elect, but he's basically going to be the the main elected leader. There's someone else that's chosen first, Dakin. But you know, he's not as reliable. London is the real, reliable one. And at the end of the novel, Max even saying like, even if the strike loses it's going to be worth it because if we can recruit this guy like London into the, the party. Um, he's got a family. He's very much got a working class identity. He very much resents the bosses. Uh, although he's a bit conservative at the beginning of the novel, he becomes one of the most loyal uh, members of the strike by the end. Um, and this is where we get a scene where we, where we see Mac believing in the importance of, of cooperation and, and, and collective action. London's daughter-in-law is about to have a baby. And there's no doctors along. And they can't really afford it. So she's going to have to have the baby in the camp. And Mac kicks out like the person they have delivering the baby. A woman. And says, well, I've done this before. So I, I should take over. He has all the men donate rags. They all donate rags. They're all washed and disinfected. And, and then Mac proceeds to... Deliver the child um, At the end of the chapter Jim comes up to him and says Well did you really Do you really know anything about You know delivering kids and he's like Hell no I mean obviously I don't know Anything about that but I wanted To take the leadership here so I could be Seen as this leadership figure he was taking Advantage of the opportunity in front of him And he also said the reason I had Everyone contribute a rag is I wanted all of the men to feel They were part of delivering of this baby and the baby Could become a symbol of of galvanizing the troops. Now, later on, there's gonna be a funeral for a striker. Well, not, I guess he wasn't a striker, it's Joy, if you haven't read the novel, and I'm, I'm not gonna to care too much about spoilers but it's Joy who dies and he's the funeral. So we have, on one end, we have birth as life as a way of galvanizing the people, and that's hinted at, but towards the end of the novel, it becomes just violence and, and pain and death is what Mac thinks can bring the people together. So it's a much more optimistic picture still at the beginning of it and here's what max says about it men always like to work together there's a hunger in men to work together do you know that 10 men can lift nearly 12 times as big a load as the one man can it only takes a little spark to get them going most of the time they're suspicious because every time someone gets a group working in a group the profit of their work is taken away from them but wait till they get working for themselves tonight the work concerned them it was their job and see how well they did end quote um so we got this this kind of idealism Okay, chapter five. In chapter five, we have Jim working in the orchard. He spends most of his day with an old man uh, named Old Dan, or Dan, just called Old Dan or Dan throughout the novel. He's really old. I think he's like 70 or something. So he remembers like the late late 18th century, you know, when this was still like lumber country or something. And he talks about how he remembers the IWW doing work in the lumber yards back in the day, the industrial workers of the world. And he's very much proud of his role as a top faller. A top. Now, what a top faller would do in in lumber camps, would he'd be the guy who'd climb to the top and like cut off all the the branches and things on the top of the tree. So it was a really risky job. It was very highly skilled. So um, this was it was an important job, and he's very proud of this work he does. He always he comes back to this idea. Well, I was a top faller at one time, and well, now he's picking apples. So it's it's. He's used to being up in trees, but it's a very different scale. Quote, I was in the Northwoods when the Wobblies was raising hells. I'm a top faller a damn good one. Maybe you notice how I take to a tree in my age. Well, I had hopes then. Of course, the Wobblies done some good. It used to be there was no crappers but a hole in the ground and no place to take a bath. The meat used to spoil. Well, the Wobblies made him put in toilets and showers. But hell, it all went to pieces. I joined unions, we'd elect a president, and first thing we knowed, he'd be kissing the ass of the superintendent and then he'd sell us out we'd pay our dues and the treasure would run out on us i don't know maybe you young squirts can figure something out what do what we've done what we could so he's a, a symbol of the old generation the generation that maybe was radical in their youth but grew up cynical and this is essentially what Mac tells him when he comes back and he says, you know, I spent the old day talking to this, this guy, old Dan. And Mac's like, why would you talk to him all day? You know, you can't talk to old people. Old people are washed up and cynical and, and useless. And he, but, the, but old Dan talks about anger and he, he notices something. He sees something that maybe even Jim doesn't see. And he says that there's anger in among the pickers. And I think even more broadly, he's talking about anger among the nation, among the working class. You know how you're about to get to fighting, crazy mad. You get a hot, sticky, wet feeling in your gut. Well, that's what it is, and it ain't just one man. It's like a whole bunch, millions and millions, was one man, and he'd been beaten, starved, and he's getting that sick feeling in his gut. The stiffs don't know what's happening, but when the big guys, when the big guy gets mad, they'll be a, they'll be all there. And by Christ, I hate to think of it. They'll be biting our throats with their teeth and clawing our lips. It's anger. That's what it is. I feel it in my skin. Right. So he's he's he senses something's going to happen soon. Um, but yeah, Max scold him for spending his whole day with him. But but Dan actually becomes an important figure in instigating the strike. And at the end of this chapter, they visit Dakin, um, who is a more wealthy local person, sympathetic with the pickers. He's got a truck, he's got a family, he's got a home, so he's a little bit more established there, a little bit more money. And they just and they meet with London too. And they're d- Mac, London, Dakin, Jim's there too, but they're discussing the strike. And there's a lot of logistical problems with putting a strike in the fields like this. One is that, you know, you don't have a place to stay, right? If they strike, that may be legal, but it's not legal for them to trespass if they're striking. And there's not public lands nearby. It's not like you can just pick it and find the street. So there's not really a place for them to camp out and stay. Like in a city, it's a little bit easier, right? And then there was the question of what to do about scabs when they come in. Since it's a big area, how do you pick it? You know, thousands of acres of, of apple orchards. And I was reminded of the Minneapolis Teamsters strike from the 1930s when they had to use flying pickets, where basically they had to have people on cars out on the roads who would track down scabs on the on the trucks to confront them because you couldn't really confront the workplace very well when you were dealing with truckers who could drive all over the country, right? So based on, there's really interesting that based on the type of workplace, you have a need a very different strategy of how to picket, right? And if you don't know, if you haven't taken Labor History 101, to picket is the mechanism that strikers have to prevent work from being done, to prevent scabs from coming in, uh, strike breakers, replacement workers, whatever term you want to use for them. So they discuss these problems, and it seems it's going to be very difficult to to get this strike working. So the next day at work, Jim Nolan is approached by a checker, um, and basically the checker asks him to be a spy for him. The, the checker knows there's strike talk and there's, there's anxiety among the bosses for a strike happening. So Nolan's approached by a checker, and they need strikes. So basically, he says, I can get you a good job, like maybe as a driver or a checker. Or I, you know, I can give you five dollars, right? You know, at the end of the day, if you bring me some information. So, um, um, anyways, the uh, Jim says, "Yeah, I'll do it." Uh, i'll you know i want the money and mac actually supports this because you know it's he knows he's not really going to inform on him but it's a way to get extra money get extra income that could be used to help support the strike so they're supporting getting money any way they can they jim talks to a boy a quote-unquote boy who's actually itching to strike and there's a, a lot of discussion here about how you know, the strike seems to be building up on its own without Jim and Mac's instigation. There's more and more strike talk, and, and Jim notices that by talking to this boy. Later that day, we get the first of a series of complaints by Jim that he's being, not being used well by Mac. Uh, Jim feels he's not really being doing the work very well um, and he feels he's not being properly used. but this is going to be a common complaint of, of Jim throughout. And then when we fe- see how Jim finally used in the final scene of the novel by Mac it's it's pretty it's quite sad to witness. At this point we're introduced to Doc Burton. Doc Burton's an important thematic character. He's, he's there kind of to be the voice of Steinbeck, I think, because Steinbeck, as I talked about earlier, was thinking about this this idea of kind of the group man versus the unit man. And Doc Burton becomes the voice of that. His role in the plot, though, his role in the plot is to be the, the doctor who's there to basically make sure the camp is clean and healthy and to care for injured. And this is because one of the easy ways to break up a strike is just to call in the health department and say the striker's camp is not healthy. It's not up to code. And then they have to break down and the police will come. So, Doc Burton's there basically to be that check against that. And Doc Burton's not a communist. He's not sympathetic directly to the leftist causes, but he's somehow, he wants to be an observer. He's interested in this. So, again, we, we really see him as kind of the voice of Steinbeck, who's maybe fascinated by these human actions uh, and how humans can behave collectively, but not necessarily a full blown communist like the characters. So, during. I think it's the next day. Dan, old Dan, collapses from a tree and breaks his hip, and the the workers. This is what galvanizes the workers into initiating the strike. Uh, they basically the complaint is that like the workplace isn't safe initially, and then with on top of that the wages are bad, so we're going to strike. Mac arranges for Landon to be chosen as part of the strike committee. Um, they they also there a lot happens in this chapter actually. They they go to Al and they talk to al about the problem of them having a place to stay and they know that al's father has five acres of a ranch nearby so mac proposes basically a deal a very cynical deal he says i'll we will pick your father's apples for free right for no labor in exchange for letting them stay there and exchange in exchange for his help and they convince al to take him to to see his father and so with this, the problem of a place to stay is solved. What actually happens is there's enough debt on, you know, Al's father's land. Anderson is his name. There's enough debt on Anderson's land that, you know, if, they, if he can pick these apples at no cost, and if there's a strike, the price of apples will go up. All that combined will mean he probably could have a really good year and pay off his, his mortgage. Um, so, and Mac reminded him that the people we're striking against are the same people who own your mortgage. So don't be too, defend, you know, don't do too much to defend them. So in the next chapter, we we finally get to meet and sit down with Doc Burton, and we learn more about his job. Now, the center of Chapter 7 is the negotiations between the bosses, um, who actually come in with the police, uh, come in with the police presence. But a negotiation between the bosses and the newly formed strike committee. They offer London a job, and it's the same kind of thing they did with Jim, is they point out, they target people who might be effective strike leaders and offer them a good job. And they offer him, I think it's a job, and then they also say, we'll give you $50 for each of the, the radicals. And I think they've already identified Mac and Jim as the communists, but maybe not. Maybe it's not until later. Um, but they eventually do identify them as the instigators. But they say we'll give fifty dollars cash to each radical as long as they get out of town and end the strike. Uh, London uh, says no dice, um, and and those negotiations break down. Here, Mac in this chapter talks about just the, the problem of sustaining a strike, especially in this kind of of environment. It's not like a factory where people kind of know each other really well and have kind of in great community. It's Where they're really integrating the community, these are migrants, right? They come in and they leave, so they really don't have necessarily family and friends, you know. Like in in a place like Lawrence, where you had the the Bread and Roses strike, you had a lot of community support in that strike, and that's one reasons it did as well as it did. But there you had, you know, the workers were the people of the community. They were your sisters and wives, and you know, husbands and children, and so there was, you know, even if you weren't a radical, you wanted to support the strike because you realized. I benefit from this. In a community like Torgus Valley, the local residents maybe don't see that. And a lot of the local residents maybe see, feel more of a connection to the growers than to the strikers. So Mac's really worried about sustaining the strike. and It's really up to the strikers themselves to keep their belief going. Uh, it's kind of actually, given this context, it's amazing they get as much support as they do. And I think at one point Mac talks about how a lot of people in the Torgus Valley maybe are, you know, not entirely friendly with the growers. Quote, we got plenty of fire now. That's the trouble with working stiffs, though. One minute they'll steam up like a keg of beer and the next they're cold as a whore's heart. We got to cut down the steam and warm up the cold. Now I want to make a suggestion. You guys can think it over and then you can get the whole bunch to vote on it. Most strikes break down because they got no discipline. Suppose we divide the men into squads and let each squad elect a leader and then he's responsible for the squad. We can work on him in groups then. And then someone someone says, well, most of these people were in the army. Right, and we... It's, there's several important references to World War One here. There's references also to the Bonus Army um, of the nineteen thirties, but more importantly, there's you know a lot of these people were veterans and they they know what it's like to be in a disciplined unit. So this isn't their first time kind of working together to achieve a goal. They did it in the army, and and Mac is always complaining that you know they, we don't have military discipline, right? That's something we're missing. Okay, chapter eight. In chapter eight, they work out the methods to sustain the picket. It's about this time that the police arrive as well, and Dakin and Mac discuss tactics. However, the heart of this chapter is a discussion between Doc Burton and Jim Norton. So I'll read from a pretty long passage. If you have the Library of America version, it's page 641 to 643, and this you can kind of dog-ear as one of the core discussions in the, in the book, at least uh, getting to, to Steinbeck's thesis. He says, you say I don't believe in the cause. That's like not believing in the moon. I've been on communes before and in there, in there, I will, in there I will again, be again. But you guys have no idea that if you can establish this thing, this job will be done. But you guys have the idea that if you can establish this thing, the job will be done. But nothing stops, Mac. If you were to put an idea into effect tomorrow, it would start changing right away. Establish a commune, and then some gradual flux will continue. Then you don't think the cause is good? Burton sighed. You see, we're going to pile up on that old rock again. That's why I don't talk very much about it. Listen to me, Mac. My senses aren't above reproach, but they're all I have. I want to see the whole picture as nearly as I can. I don't want to put on the blinders of good and bad and limit my vision. If I use the term good on a thing, I'll lose my license to inspect it. There might be bad in it, don't you see? I want to be able to look at the whole thing. And Mac broke in. What about social injustice? The profit system? You have to say they're bad. Mac, look at this physiological injustice. The injustice of tinnatus, the injustice of syphilis, the gangster methods of of amoebic dysentery. That's my field. But revolution and communism will cure social injustice. Yes, and disinfection and prophylactics will prevent the others. It's different though. Men are doing one and germs are the other. I can't see much difference, Mac. Well, damn it, doc, there's lockjaw every place. You can find syphilis in Parkin Avenue. Why do you hang out with us if you are not for us? I want to see, Burton said. When you cut your finger, the streptococci get in the wound and there's swelling and soreness. And the swelling is the fight your body puts up and the pain is the battle. I can't tell which one is going to win, but the wound is the first battleground. And if the cells lose the first fight, the streptococci invade and the fight goes up the arm. Mac, these little strikes are like the infection. Something has gotten into the men. A little fever has started and the lymphatic glands are shooting in reinforcements. I want to see, so I want to get a seat at the wound. You figure the strike is a wound? Yes, group men are always getting some kind of infection. This seems to be a bad one. I want to see, Mac. I want to watch the group men, for they seem to me to be a new individual. Not like a single man. A man in a group isn't like himself at all. He's a cell in an organism. And it isn't like him any more than the cells in your body are like you. I want to watch the group and see what it's like. People have said, mobs are crazy. You can't tell what they'll do. I don't look, why Why don't people look at mobs as men? Not as men, but as mobs. A mob nearly seems to act reasonably for a mob. And then he goes on to talk a little bit more about um, the group men thesis he has. It's a, it's a rather important chapter. Um, now the police arrive and threaten Mac and Jim with direct violence. And they have to kind of get out of Dodge um, before they get beaten up by the police, or they think they're threatened basically to be lynched. With the police watching, however, they, they'll need to do the best they can to keep the picket going. Jim observes that he starts to feel less scared the more, the more danger of a situation he is in. And here, I think, is a suggestion to the groupman thesis, right? Jim's no longer himself. Jim is becoming something, part of the group, and therefore he loses his fear. Um, Now, chapter nine, on on this day, the main danger is this trainload of scabs arriving. Um, Mac knows that this kind of thing is going to require violence. He doesn't necessarily announce it, but he knows whenever you're going to have strike breakers coming, you know, first the violence is needed to sustain kind of the energy of the strike, but also just how do you stop them without actually getting in their face, right? But Mac does have some hope that he can convince strike breakers to, to, to go to their side. And, and he's seen this before. They eventually confront the riving riot, scabs and find out that they're actually mostly vigilantes and thugs and they're not really workers and pickers. And in fact, I don't think strike breakers end up being much of a threat to the strike in this novel. It's more the vigilantes and the, you know, kind of the local, Police and the what the growers do and, and how the growers get things going. Um, they don't really rely too much on strike breakers Showing how cheap they are I guess Now joy is among these people so a piece he's come along to basically be a troublemaker uh, During the strike, but he's you know, he joined the group he joined with the, the, the strike breakers and instead of He just starts a disturbance here. He starts waving his arms and yelling. It's not really clear what he says and he's quickly shot down by the police. And Mac's response to this is pretty heartbreaking. He basically says, well, now Joy's finally doing something useful uh, with his life. By dying, he can be a, a source of, of power for for the union, or for the strikers. They aren't really a union yet, but for the strikers. The police accuse the strikers of starting the shooting, of shooting a strike breaker and they want the body but the strikers take joy's body and basically claim it because mac wants to have a funeral that'll be very public and be a source of of energy for them so the strike strikers want to use joy to their advantage Um, mac explains that these strike breakers are actually mostly vigilantes and not actually um, workers and later on they get a report that the vigilantes burn up al's lunch counter right now al's of course the father or the son of the man whose land they're staying on. So he gets targeted by the vigilantes and his livelihood, the the, the lunch cart is burned up. And we get here uh, a reminder of the cost of being a party member. Um, Mac, he's got some sympathy for Al, but at the same time he says, you know, this is kind of what you sign up for. Al's got a good head, Mac said. Al sees the whole thing. You would have been out on your can anyways. Now if you get bounced You got a big bunch of men in your back. These men aren't going to forget what you're doing for them, and we'll put a guard around your house tonight. And I'll have the doctor come over pretty soon and look at Mac. All right. So that, that's actually what he says to Anderson um, in response to the complaint. Well, you know, this cart cost eighteen hundred dollars. Now, this is going to be the first. This is going to be. This is not going to be the last suffering that Anderson faces as a result of of helping the strikers. But we'll get, have to get to that in the next episode. We're already at 50 minutes uh, and we're about halfway through the novel. Um, so it's, it's about 160 pages, so I'll do 130 pages. And that gets us about halfway through. So in the next episode, I'll, I'll rush to the rest of the plot. Uh, you kind of know most of what you need to know to, to, to get into this novel and to think about it. There's um, most of the rest of the novel is kind of just the unfolding of the plot of the strike reaching to the climax. So I'll I'll have time next time to talk about themes of of this novel and where I think it fits into Steinbeck's career and where I think it it fits into American literature. So with that, I'll sign off. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this, if you got something out of it, if you have opinions, please comment or share or like it, and uh, I'll respond to any comments you do make. Um, So I'll see you in 100 pages. Thanks again for listening.
0: Of gold in the sky, and live in a shack that's away in the back. Oh, would you have wings up in heaven to fly, and starve here with a rags on your back? But there is power, there is power in a man to work and vote when we stand hand in hand. That's the power, that's the power that must rule in every land. One industrial.